Let me invite you to remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Our passage this morning is Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. And if you'd like to follow along with one of the Black Pew Bibles, that's page 810. We're looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, His preaching and proclaiming of the kingdom, an invitation to follow Him and to have righteousness that exceeds even the most righteous people His disciples have ever seen or heard from. Jesus continues pointing to a righteousness that surpasses even the most righteous as His people follow Him. Let's now attend to His instructions, Matthew 5, 33-37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we come to your faithful, unfailing word. For you are an upright and steadfast, faithful God. By your Spirit, help us to receive and to understand and respond aright with that which I speak only be what you have for us today. This is my prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. She doth protest too much, methinks. That's what Queen Gertrude says in Shakespeare's play, Hamlet. It's become a popular saying, though we tend to make it backwards. Methinks she doth protest too much. Not many of us tend to quote Shakespeare because so much of it doesn't seem to apply. But for some reason, these words, she doth protest too much, methinks, does. Because in Hamlet, Queen Gertrude is watching a play within a play. Her son Hamlet is trying to expose what he believes to be true that his uncle, Claudius, had been married by Queen Gertrude after Claudius had killed Hamlet's own father. And so he reflects what he believes to be reality in this play within the play. And so Queen Gertrude is watching this play, and the queen within the play is telling her dying husband, I love you. I will never love anyone like I love you. I will love you to my dying breath. When you pass away, I will never love another. And on and on she goes. And meanwhile, Queen Gertrude is saying, she doesn't protest too much, I think. She's laying it on a little thick. She is saying these profound and wordy things, but perhaps it disguises an intent to loosen commitment rather than enforce it. We know what that's like. We hear someone profess overtly their commitment, their trustworthiness, their absolute guaranteed lowest prices this side of the Mississippi. And sometimes the stronger the words, the more we are uncertain about their trustworthiness. 
This is what Jesus is addressing. Jesus is addressing a society in which the taking of oaths and vows was far more prominent than it is today. There are lots of implicit ways that we make promises and commitments when we engage in business and have contracts, when we sign mortgages, when we marry, and so many other things. But in a culture so shaped by the spoken word, where your word was your bond, it was very prominent and normal for people to make overt oaths, to take overt vows before people. But Jesus knows that what is happening is not an intent to fill God's word, but actually an intent among so many people to get themselves out of the holiness that God requires. See, what he refers to is a reflection on the third commandment. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. And the most simple way to make an oath or a vow was to swear in the name of the Lord that you would do something, whether for the Lord or for someone else. He's referencing here what they've heard before from Leviticus 19.12. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. In Deuteronomy Chapter 23, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. You have heard it said. But then Jesus goes on to say, But I say to you not to take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the king. What is Jesus getting at? Well, if we continue in the book of Matthew... We get to chapter 23, Jesus is confronting the Pharisees. He's proclaiming woes over the Pharisees, and he gives us a bit more. He says, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. See, the prominence of taking of vows and oaths was such that people began to wordsmith. They began to decide what things that they would swear by would be binding and what things that they could swear by that sounded important and sounded prominent, but if they didn't keep their promise, they could still say, well, I didn't take the Lord's name in vain. I'm still innocent. In fact, you can go and read specific instructions on this from the day and age of Jesus in the Mishnah talking about the different things that they could swear by and not. When Jesus says, take not an oath, he is confronting our use of words to do the opposite of their intent. God commands us to honor our words, to keep our promises, to fulfill our commitments to one another. But the taking of these overt oaths and vows had become a performance, a shadow play, a farce where the words became not ties to bind us to what we have said in truth, but have become loopholes by which to escape our responsibility. Well, I only proclaimed that I would do that by the temple, not the gold of the temple. I'm okay. But God has given us the ability to communicate, to speak to one another, to communicate truth to tie the realm of our intention and our imagination, our desire to the world of the real, so that we can transfer knowledge and truth and beauty to one another in a way that reflects the glory of God. Our lips, our words, our promises are meant to bless. And so we're called to use them with integrity and honesty 
as those who follow Christ. We are to be honest in our assurances and our promises, honest with ourselves and with others and with God. As Jesus gives these instructions on oaths, as he addresses not only the words spoken, but the heart behind the words, we're called to be honest with others, ourselves, and with God. First, our call to be honest with others. It is hard to tell the truth to others. It's hard to make promises because as soon as we make a promise, we have the ability to be held accountable. Someone else has some sense of power, or at least perceived power, over us. And so the intent of those described here was to save face with others. Rather than commit to others, or be honest with them, they wanted to appear to commit to them. They are mitigating their responsibility. They are not directly invoking God's name. They say, well, I'm not calling, using the Lord's name in vain. I'm merely talking about heaven, or I'm talking about the temple, or I'm talking about Jerusalem. So that if they don't fulfill their word, they can feel like they did what was right in the end. But really, they can't escape from that responsibility to be honest before others, because as Jesus reminds them, how can you swear by heaven it's still God's throne? How can you swear by the earth? It's his footstool. How can you swear by Jerusalem? It's the city of the great king. These things all belong to God. You can't escape your call to be honest to others before God because all things belong to God. Anytime we do things as those who follow him, we are really bearing his name. God's intent for us is not that we have contracts and wordsmithing that gets us out of our commitments, but that we would be committed fully to the people that we promise and make commitments to. So is Jesus saying we should get rid of all vows or all oaths? And honestly, there have been some Christians throughout history that have said across the board we're supposed to make no public promises. Anabaptists and Amish and Mennonites are among them, and this is part of the reason that they often live separately, because they can't enter into a mortgage contract without that being viewed as a vow, or be in public governmental service and serve in the military. And Jesus speaks strongly here. But last week we looked at his call that if our right hand causes us to sin, to cut it off, if our right eye causes us to sin, to pluck it out and throw it away, and Jesus was being hyperbolic. Jesus is using strong language. Not so that we can dismiss it, but so that we can pay attention. But Jesus' call was not to actually chop off our hands, but to deal with our hearts and the seriousness of sin. In fact, we read later that when Jesus is under trial before his crucifixion, that he is speaking under oath. The Apostle Paul takes vows, and other Christians are described as taking vows later on. In reality, most of the things that we would describe as vows or oaths are actually pretty simple yeses and noes compared to the extravagant oaths that would have been taken in Jesus' time. But Jesus' point is, such should be the conduct of God's people that we don't need to try to prove our truthfulness with a bunch of words. We're certainly not to try to evade our commitment unless doing so would cause us to sin. We do live 
in a dishonest age among dishonest people because we ourselves are often dishonest with ourselves and with others. But what God wants, what Jesus is calling his people to do is to live in such a way, to use your words in such a way that it shouldn't be necessary for you to take an oath or a vow. And so privately, Christians should just be those types of people that simply give a yes or a no and without all of this extravagant language still bind themselves to their words. Such that people should think of Christians as those that honor their word. We bear the name of Christ. That's what it is to be a Christian. As those who bear the name of Christ, we should not use the Lord's name in vain when we speak and when we promise and commit. And in those instances where someone else needs to be assured, we give ourselves full commitment, not as the world is witnessing, not as those people might be judging us, but as God is our witness. Because He knows the intention of our hearts, not just what we say outwardly. Our honesty with others should come for love for them, but also love of the God that we seek to honor. And so one of the things we need to think about is to not fall into the trap of trying to appease the powerful while lying or misleading the powerless. Writer and pastor Don Dor- Dan Doriani describes it this way. We often violate words spoken to the powerless, such as our children, much more than we break promises spoken to the powerful, such as our boss. We break our less visible commitments and we keep more highly visible ones. Because what we're interested in is the approval of others, not the keeping of our word. Jesus says, We are to let our yes be yes and our no be no because what we are seeking is not a way out of our commitments but to be honest before the Lord and to others, whether it's easy or not. If we're going to do that, if we're going to break with this tendency to try to build up the perception of our honesty rather than our actual honesty, then we will also need to not be honest with others only but with ourselves. In verses 24 excuse me, verses 34 through 36, as they take oaths by heaven or by the earth or the city of Jerusalem, they're trying to separate themselves from swearing in the Lord's name. And it won't work because they belong to God. In fact, anything we might be tempted to swear by belongs to God. We have similar practices today. Someone might swear, I swear on my mother's grave, it's the truth. Or I swear on my mother's life, depending on whether they are dead or alive. Because we are saying we're alluding to something that seems to have significance or sacredness to bolster ourselves. But the reality is, those things don't belong to us. We don't have control over them. Jesus transitions in verse 36 to swearing by these other things, Jerusalem and the temple, to our own heads. He says, And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Even your body, in the end, is not fully under your control. It belongs to God. Often when we overpromise and we underperform, 
It's because of our desire to appear able, to appear in control, to appear strong. And that comes from arrogance. James, the brother of Jesus, who reflects on the wisdom of the Sermon Mount and the Old Testament wisdom of the Proverbs, says a few decades later, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. Sometimes our promises come not from what we intend, but because we have aspirations to be able to be people who are in control of our circumstances, in control of our lives, in control of the perceptions that others have of us. That's not honesty with others, nor is it honesty with ourselves. We're called not to make promises we can't keep. And that will require honest appraisal of our limitations. Honest appraisals of our creatureliness. The limitations on our time. The limitations on our finances. The limitation on our abilities. The limitation on our good reputation with others. We do not have infinite resources. We shouldn't promise as if we do. We need to be honest that we are not in control. So then do we say, well, we make no promises or or no commitments as a response? Do we just waffle and say, well, I hope to do so? No, because that's essentially what the oath takers and breakers of Jesus' day were doing. They were just waffling with big and beautiful words. But what they were saying is, I make this huge commitment to you, but here's this little little clause that lets me out. We've been around politicians long enough to know that we are maybe hopeful of their campaign promises, but we don't put too much expectation in the results. They were waffling while trying to appear confident. They were giving themselves an out. It is not that we should not make promises, but that we should be slow to speak. Quick to listen. Quick to know what is truly needed. Slow to commit to something that we can't truly offer. And when we do commit, and as Christians, we should be those who are committed, who are devoted to the tasks that God has given us, when we do promise to keep it, even at cost. We acknowledge that keeping our word may be harder than we expect. That there may be unanticipated circumstances that will arise, but rather than looking for an excuse to opt out, we seek the help to accomplish This is what causes us to then in turn be honest with God. For if we are to be people who keep our word, whether it's simple and private or whether it's public and well-known, we will need help. We will need to be honest with God. Think of foxhole prayers. That term has come to describe those prayers often seen in a 
in a movie where someone is caught in a dangerous circumstance and they cry out to God or their perception of God and say, God, if you will deliver me from this, and whether it's the danger of war or an illness or a difficulty in the relationship, God, if you will deliver me, if you will save me, then I will do this. I will give up smoking. I will give up drinking. I will follow you. I will be a better person, whatever the promise is. And it seems so profound, and there's something wonderfully intimate about that. There's something vulnerable about that that we can appreciate and often God honors those prayers but those are some pretty ludicrous prayers aren't they God I am stuck in something that I didn't anticipate that is beyond my control free me of this thing that I can't control and then I will respond by controlling the rest of my life I wasn't good enough I wasn't smart enough I wasn't strong enough here but in the future, I will be smart enough, good enough, holy enough. We need to be honest with God that we need Him every hour. That when we make promises, we make them before Him, not just that He would bear witness to us, but so that He would help us. Last weekend, I officiated a wedding. Two people who sinned committed to love each other forever. Just now, Lillian made vows and the church made vows to Lillian as Ella was brought for baptism. A lot of things can happen. We are vowing to encourage baby Ella to know the Lord when she rebels when she stays up late past curfew, when she brings home the types of friends that we don't like. The couple that I married last week is supposed to love each other in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want. There are so many things that will come up in our lives that are beyond our control, that will be beyond our ability. We don't even anticipate all that can come. And so we need to make our promises and our commitments with the help of a God who sees. A God who knows and a God who is able to give us the strength and the commitment to follow through on what we have promised and committed. And when we fall short, to confess to Him. Confess when we want men's approval over honoring His name. Of appearing to have integrity rather than actually having it. We are called to be honest to God so that we can receive from Him what we need to be men and women of integrity. And when we're honest about ourselves to God, we will begin to be honest about who God is. We can be honest with Him because He is a God that is faithful to His Word. God makes promises God makes oaths. He makes overt covenant promises throughout Scripture. But the reason He does it is not because He needs to bolster His reputation. Not so that He can pat Himself on His back, but because He knows how much we have been wounded by being untruthful to each other. He knows how unlikely we are to believe in good promises from each other, from ourselves, even from God. And yet in His grace and His mercy, He swears by His own name that what He says He will do. I will be God to you and to your children and your children's children. I will never 
forsake you. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. God promises these things to us. But the thing about God is, unlike us, he knows what it will cost to fulfill those oaths. He knows that for an unholy people to be his beloved priesthood, for a sinful, spotted church to be his without blemish, spotless bride will come at a cost. And God swears, he promises, not only knowing what the cost will be, but fully able and willing to do what is necessary to keep his word. Even at the cost of his son coming to live and die, to bear the wrath for our sins, so that when he rose from the dead, that resurrection could be ours too. We are called to be honest with God so that we can receive the honesty of God as our hope instead of the dishonesty within. So that we can be honest with ourselves and see our need. So that we can be humble and honest with others not because the strength is within us but the strength is in the God who keeps His promises. And Jesus is the one that shows us that those promises are true who comes to crush the head of Satan as was promised in the beginning, who will come again to raise the living and the dead. Let's pray. God, thank you for your promises. We know that they are yes and amen in Jesus. We know that some are yet to come to fullness. Others we can look back to and see your full provision. But we come to you and ask that you would help us turn from untruthful, self-protecting hearts to be hearts of integrity, to speak the truth, to be slow to promise and quick to fulfill what we have promised because we want to show the world that we trust in a God who speaks and whose word is absolute truth. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the living word. Amen.